Welcome back to the Free Mind Podcast. Um, I was a little bit surprised after the last three episodes, the feedback and responses I got back. There was a bit more interest than I initially thought there would be on those topics, but I uh, ended up getting in some good conversations with some family members and friends. And in those conversations, I realized, you know what, I might need to do maybe just a little bit more, spend a little more time um, digging in a little bit more of the details on these issues. I mean, we can really only scratch the surface. There's so much that you can do further research on under each one of the headings of, you know, eschatological frameworks and their systematic theologies and how that, uh, you know, results in different practical theologies. But but hopefully you'll see how they all connect. And then you can kind of like springboard off of this and do further research if you're if you're really interested. But um, I, I do think it's really important to to get your head around the basics of these issues. I mean, we I think most people would recognize right now just the craziness of, of things that are going on. You know, it's like some people have been calling it clown world or trash world or Aaron Wren's negative world. Um, and things are just changing, man, at a rapid pace. And, it, and it, when you look around every day, it, it does seem like it's getting worse and worse. And it's like, how many more things can you, you know, touch on? It's like another pastor is LGBTQ affirming now and, you know, another drag queen story event, you know, sexualizing children and another Grammy artist does a satanic performance. And in fact, just today I was flipping around on uh, social media and I saw that, I guess there was this, this TikTok thing going viral, all these Gen Zers uh, talking about this letter, supposed letter that was on the guardian for Osama bin Laden. Uh, it's called a letter to America or something. And they were sort of taking his side and saying how bad America was and how, you know, he actually wasn't that off. Maybe something like that. I, I haven't done a, done a, you know, a, a real thorough look into it or anything like that. But I came across this on a uh, freedom center, which is great freedom center LU. If you don't follow them on Instagram, I would um, just encourage you to do that. But Ryan posted, if you're alarmed by the TikTok generation's sudden sympathy for Osama bin Laden, don't be. It's our anti-Christian, anti-God, woke, critical theorist, victimology-infused Western education that produced it. The chickens are coming home to roost, he says. And so, um, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost, and we're, we're seeing the the deconstruction of really the Tao, as we, as we addressed in the first episode of this season, that C.S. Lewis talked about in The Abolition of Man, the undoing of the very fabric of the created order that God put in place. And so I think, you know, it's like, man, what do we do with this? Do we just keep, you know, wringing our hands and complaining about it? Um, do we do we respond? Do we do we fight back? Do we withdraw? You know, so many so many questions. I think we all agree, or at least not not all, but most of us would agree on the diagnosis but it's it's what to do i think where where it gets a little bit more challenging and that's where a lot of times eschatology comes into play in systematic theology and so that's why i think it's going to be worth it to to spend a little bit more time on these issues i was thinking about you know just just having a game playing you know we, we i've had times where you just you know, you have you have a basketball team, you have some talented players, and you just you say, you know, just roll the ball out and let's play the game. But when you're really going, you know, you're trying to build a, or a solid team and have a championship team, no matter how talented the players are, you could have the you know the '96 Bulls, they still had the triangle offense. You know, they had to learn the system. They had a they had a, you know great, really uh, practiced 
and well-studied game plans uh, that they that they utilized to to really become that that team that they were. And so, you know, I think that that we don't want to just roll the ball out there. We can see we haven't been doing that that great with that with that option in in Christian circles. So, I think sometimes stepping back and, and having having this time of like, okay, let's let's pause from the defensive evangelicalism and figure out what 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 do we do here? What's our goal? What's our mission? And I think part this is going to be part of that conversation. So, um, I want to start out with just like this little intro. Let me let me pull this up. You may want to. If you're a visual learner, you may want to hop on like YouTube or Rumble for this episode because I'm going to be putting some charts up and stuff that uh, might might be helpful if you want to look at stuff. So, what I'm going to start with though, there's since the the three episodes I released, I I went on a tear just reading all these books and reading these articles and, and some revisiting some old things that I had looked at a while back on church history and just trying to get my own understanding of like man where where. How do I how do I explain these things in a, in a simple way and, and break these down? And I came across this book and read it called a, a Post Millennial Primer: Basics of Optimistic Eschatology by Andrew Sandlin. And he had a had a preface in it, a really good book by the way. If you want a real short version of just you know kind of kind of a quick snapshot of uh, post millennialism in in, in at least from his point of view, what the defects of dispensationalism are, uh, I would I would recommend checking this book out on that on that side of things if you're interested in learning. But there was a guy named uh, R.J. Rushdoony who was big in the Christian Reconstruction movie m- movie movement. Uh, brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, you know, you may not agree with everything he said and, and all that, but he was actually a post-millennial, not a preterist. And uh, I'll talk more about that term maybe a little bit later in this episode. But he says this, he wrote this in 1997. While eschatology means the doctrine of last things, it can with justice be said that it necessarily means also first things. No man gets on a plane, train, or bus and decides on his destination after boarding it. He must first of all have a destination. The same is true in the life of faith. To begin without a destination in eschatology is nonsense. Well over half a century ago, I knew slightly an able pastor who called himself a pan-millennialist, i.e. he believed in all views and in none. He was a particularly able and powerful speaker, but also an impotent one. He selected sermon texts in terms of current interests, appealing subjects, and concerns over increasing his stature. He was always interesting to hear, but always without a focus. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second because I think that you're going to see in a minute, I'm going to play something from a kind of an opposing perspective to this that I think also highlights some, some important truths, but I think there's, he's Rush Juni was on to something here. Like there, there, cause I've called myself just jokingly, like, I mean, you've heard it a million times, a pan millennialist in the end, it all pan out. You know, I don't really know, but we know that eventually we win Christ wins and that's all we need to know. And I think there's, you know, there's something to this, a, a sort of like studied agnosticism that can be good when it comes to issues of eschatology. 
On the other hand, I do think that he's right. Like um, he said, as powerful as that speaker was, like when you don't have that overall box top, like the 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 narrative of scripture, at least to some detail, it does. It is hard not to just like hit on current interests in a way that makes it without focus, um, th- that knowing that destination, or at least having a pretty good idea of that destination does kind of, um, set you up for how do we live in the present, you know? And that, that is the challenge because eschatology is really hard. And as, as you will see, when you dive into these issues at a deeper level, like it really is tough to, to nail something down with any, any degree of confidence or certainty, um, and being that it does, you know, impact how you live, that, that can be a challenge. I think there's ways to, to still, um, kind of, kind of work through that, but I do want to, I do want to feel the weight of what he's saying here for a moment and just say, yeah, it, it can be hard if you don't know the destination, what are you doing getting on the train? You know, what do you do? How do you live now? So continuing on, he was always interesting to hear, but always without focus, he did well, but he was in essence a dry well because he was maintaining a church, not creating an army for the Lord. His lack of an eschatology was a lack of purpose. And I, and I have seen that. I, I've, I've seen that, that, that certain eschatologies, I think, this is me talking again, uh, don't result in, in raising up an army for the Lord. And the lack of one makes it hard to do that as well, so... Continuing on, the premillennial preacher wants to save souls before the rapture comes. The amillennialist preacher seeks to save souls as brands from the burning, as men rescued into the church, God's ark, from the floods of evil. The postmillennialist sees it as his duty to bring every area of life and thought into captivity to Christ, the Redeemer King, so that he may rule over all things and bring in his reign of righteousness and peace through his people. Pause in here too, because I think I think that is a, actually a really good summary of generalized truths to what each of those frameworks do like what, what their goal becomes. And if you listen, I've been, I've been like really listening to a lot of uh, pre-millennial pre-trib rapture dispensationalists lately. And it, and it does come back to that so many times we got to be out there saving souls, you know, and that's their main thing. And the Amil folks, you know, that certain ones like, uh, you know, you might even think of G3 here and their resistance to Christian nationalism and, and kind of their emphasis on, the church and, you know, the kind of a sort of a defensive evangelicalism, but not a real game plan for taking any ground. Whereas the post mill folks are the ones that do tend to see all of Christ for all of life. And, you know, and you might ask yourself, well, is there, is there a way to get that result without subscribing to post mill thought? Um, I think there, there could be, um, but it, but it does seem to be a more of a natural fit with that viewpoint. So going on here. Our Lord's commandment, seek ye first the kingdom of God and in his his righteousness or justice, Matthew 6.33, is an eschatological statement. The Bible from start to finish has an end in view and is governed by God's plan and purpose. 
To attempt to promote a biblical faith without the biblical purpose is false and untenable. I'm going to read that again. He says, The attempt to promote a biblical faith without the biblical purpose is false and untenable. The biblical God does not muddle through improvising as he goes, and for Christians to assume that eschatology is unimportant is to say that it is unimportant what we believe about first and last things. Now, me again talking here. So you'll notice too that that's part of the debate on first things with like Genesis, like how, how people, you know, see the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Should this be read in a more literal fashion? Is it more of a kind of a, you know, a, a Jewish myth that has truth in it and everything in between. And oftentimes that, that conversation will center around, man, the, you know, the first things in the scripture, it's, it's, it's not just a matter of, uh, biblical inerrancy and, and being faithful to the text, it actually sets up the whole story and, and has a lot of implications for many things in theology and, and to reduce it down to just, you know, uh, what some more on the, maybe not, I don't know if that's fair to say, but some that lean more away from the more literal hermeneutic on in early Genesis chapters they would tend to try to downplay the importance of seeing Adam and Eve as historical figures, for instance, um, while the opposing viewpoint would see that as, no, those are, that's, that's crucial to the whole story. So you, you sort of get this from both sides, the, the first things and last things, and how it's important to the biblical narrative, and that narrative really does inform and has to inform and should inform your systematic theology. So continuing on here, with some, a lack of eschatological concern is simply selfishness, egocentricity. Their attitude is, I am saved, so I am going to heaven. Therefore, to be concerned about end times is not necessary for me. Such a view is a tacit denial of Christianity. We are not called simply to avoid hell and to float to heaven on flowery beds of ease, but to serve God with all our heart, mind, and being, and our neighbor as ourselves. The focus of our salvation is not to escape hell, but to serve our Lord and seek first his kingdom. The eschatology of death governs the non-Christian world. Men see death as the end of life and the grave as its effective goal. They live in order to get out of life what they can while they can. The non-millennialist is in his own way a part of this egocentric world. Our faith must be eschatological or it will be impotent. An impotent Christian faith is a contradiction in terms. And so, you know, that's, that's, that is kind of one reason that I think Rush Dooney is, there, there's a lot of weight in what he's saying there. I think it is important to kind of understand that framework and, you know, to what degree we can understand it and then how much we lean on it. I think people, you know, there's room to debate about that. But I want to pull in kind of something here that's going to feel a little bit uh, in contradiction to that, and, and maybe it is in part, but I think there's elements from that we can put together with elements of what he said. So this was uh, – this was from a discussion called An Evening of Eschatology um, with the Canon Press app. And in this, in this uh, discussion, they, they have all four. I mean, 
typically nowadays you, you could think of it as four major approaches. So you got uh, dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Those are those are you know typically in the evangelical world when you get discussions of eschatology. Those are the four ma- major positions, and each one of those have a bunch of variations underneath um, as sub branches. But that's what this was. It's really worth listening to. In fact, I. I Huge, huge fan of the Canon Plus app. Really, really helpful stuff, especially on these kinds of issues. But I want to play this first guy. Um, he he was the first contributor to it, and I can't even remember his name. But he was a he is a historical premillennialist. But I like just how he kind of intros and opens up with this. I think it's 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 helpful framing for this issue. What I'm actually going to be laying out is more precisely circumspect largely agnostic, ambivalent, but nevertheless hopeful, confident, and committed, working for the best, recognizing that the worst may still be ahead, eschatology. So I think I'm, I'm going to play that again because that's really important how he says that. I'm, I'm going to pause here and, and just make some comments. To be laying out is more precisely circumspect, largely agnostic, ambivalent. So he says he's going to lay out his position, his historic premillennialism, but he's going to do so in a circumspect way where he's largely, you know, agnostic and ambivalent. Now, that's the part being agnostic about it is going to run against what Rush Duny just said. How can you, you know, if you're agnostic about that, then you're going to be agnostic about what to do and, you know, point well taken. But I do think there's something here that's helpful is like when you really, really study these issues out, especially for, I mean, this has been the case for me. I think the 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 best you should do and can do with this is say yes, I I hold this position, which I'm still working on, which one I'm going to land on. Um, but I would say hold it with somewhat of a loose hand, you know, and be circumspect in it. Understand that, like, yeah, this is my view, and here's my reasons why. But I may be wrong, and I get the 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 weaknesses of my own view, and I understand the strengths of the other ones. Um, and I think that's an important posture, at least for most of us. I mean, maybe Rush Dooney, you know, he, he was a smart guy. Maybe he had it figured out and had it with certainty, but <laughs> I doubt it. But nevertheless, hopeful, confident, and committed, working for the best. So hopeful, confident, committed. So pre-mill, the, the pre-mill viewpoint tends to be more of, of a pessimistic eschatology. So by and large... Uh, they they do view like society will get worse and worse. You know, in the end, will will Jesus find faith on the earth? Kind of thing. You know, the the great apostasy. Like you have all this, um, all the the nations basically. You know, turning against Israel, turning against Christianity. It's it's it has this idea that you know the the we lose down here kind of thing. But I like how he says like even he is someone who's holding to that viewpoint. He says hopeful, and he's going to work for the best. So let me play that again. Largely agnostic, ambivalent, but nevertheless hopeful, confident, and committed, working for the best, recognizing that the worst may still be ahead, eschatology. Now, I, I want to defend myself a little bit right away by saying this is not a muddle-headed, foggy-headed, unstudied ambivalence. I, I think the ambivalence and agnosticism about the future is actually most biblical. That, that the whole biblical posture, particularly the posture of the New Testament, 
is to provide to the believer, one who would take the words of Jesus, the writings of Paul and John and Peter most seriously, should leave some question marks and some gaps, and it's the person who takes a posture of having it all figured out uh, is the one that we should be most suspicious of. Now, there's going to be no one here tonight that that, uh, that does that. And so you can hear that again, that, that, is, that part would contradict Rush Dooney, but I do think that there's there's very much something to what he's saying there. He's saying not a foggy ambivalence. It's not because he, it's it's not, you know, well, I'm, I'm punting on first down with eschatology. It's no, no, no. I've played all the downs. It's fourth down. I've made some progress, but I'm going to punt on fourth down ultimately to saying, you know, yeah, I don't have it exactly figured out to the T, you know, and the degree to which I, I think I'm right is I, I hold it like with tentativeness because that's what he believes the New Testament actually would would encourage us to do. And I think there there is some support for that in, in a lot of ways. Like if you think about it worldviewishly, I think Rush Uni's onto something because you do getting on that train, like you do need to know where the destination is. And, and maybe we can figure out roughly what that is without having all the details lined up. But you also see in the New Testament this idea when the disciples even ask Jesus, well, is this what you're going to do this? And he says, well, you know, it's not for, not for you to know these times and seasons, but here's what I want you to do in the meantime. And I want you to be hopeful that it's going to make a real difference. The gospel is going to go forward and all that kind of stuff. So, um, But uh, I'm going to suggest that the Bible itself urges uh, some circumspection and some ambivalence about the future. Well, why the differences of opinion? Why all the confusion? Uh, maybe it's good that I'm starting because let's get some of those things on the table uh, because some of it is sociological and some of it's biblical. And let's start with uh, some of the biblical reasons. Here, here's one, sorry, here's one typical sort of passage this one from Jesus in the New Testament. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A lot of us recognize that from Matthew 6. This is Luke's version that uh, occurs in Luke 12. Be ready for service. Keep your lamps burning. So put your treasure in the life to come. But know this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, you get some of this thief of the night kind of a theme, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. It, it's not an admonition to figure out when he's coming back so that you'll be ready. It's a commandment to be ever vigilant because it's not for you to know. It's impossible for you to know when he'll return. Similarly, the beginning of Acts, Jesus is now resurrected. The disciples realize we thought we had it figured out what the Messiah was going to be about. We figured out you were king. We even figured out you were Lord uh, in following you. Uh, we never saw the, the crucifixion coming, even though you tried to tell us a hundred times. But uh, now that you're resurrected, is it now that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus's answer is not, no, that's a couple of thousand years away. Uh, it's not, no, you need to read more carefully. It's, it's not for you to know. The times and epics the Father has fixed. So part of the reason why I would urge and espouse myself a certain circumspection and ambivalence is because I think that is one of the few elements that are abundantly clear in biblical teaching on things of the future. So what he's arguing there is what's more clear in the Scripture than a particular 
view of eschatology is the idea that it's not really for us to know, and therefore we don't need to make that a concern of ours, but we need to be busy about obeying what God has called us to do. And, that, you know, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. There are also some sociological reasons, though, um, besides biblical, and I'll zip through these uh, pretty quickly. First, <clears throat> through history, the view of Christians regarding the end times has conspicuously and consistently matched the current events of the time period. Now, I was raised premillennialist. I've heard this point all my life. Premillennialists are fond of observing, pointing out that the eschatology of the early church was premillennialist. When Jesus returns, it'll be to rescue us in earthly form and to start the millennium. But the time period of the early church was one of intense persecution. They're being thrown to the lions, literally. They're being tortured and killed. So in that time period, they were looking for Christ to come back and rescue them. Well, no sooner does Constantine get converted and the and Christianity becomes the religion of the empire when postmillennialism gets a, a big kick. Uh, Eusebius wonders aloud uh, whether the, the, the very palace at which they're meeting might be the banquet hall of the New Jerusalem. And then when Rome is destroyed and the barbarians begin to invade the Roman Empire, uh, Augustine is one who forwards a more ambivalent, what's been called since amillennialism. But by the way, uh, I am not sure that amillennialism or postmillennialism were distinguished from one another until the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's, that's, that's why both of you are going to try and claim Augustine, why both of you are going to try and claim Calvin. <laughs> but uh, uh, as soon as Christianity was legalized and proliferated, a more optimistic, hopeful kind of eschatology was embraced. In the United States South, it was a post-millennial region. We are establishing the kingdom. Uh, we are forwarding the purposes of Christ and his kingdom on behalf of God. It was post-millennial until the Civil War, war between the states, war for Southern independence, whatever you want to call it, the uh, war of Northern aggression. See, the post-millennials knows it. <laughs> war of Northern aggression. Um, in, the, in the aftermath of losing that battle, uh, losing that war and reconstruction, uh, the rise of premillennialism took place, including among such former Confederate soldiers like Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. Uh, premillennialism, we must be under judgment. It must be God's design to take the world through a period of judgment and tribulation before uh, he returns. And then World War I, World War II, Cold War uh, really propelled uh, premillennialist thought, or at least made people more predisposed to receiving premillennialist ideas under the assumption that the world is supposed to be, by God's design, to get worse and worse until Christ returns. Now, that doesn't prove correctness or incorrectness, but it should alert us, if we're at all sensitive to the nature of interpretation and hermeneutics, that uh, some of what we see and are drawn to in our biblical interpretation is in part affected by what kinds of questions and perspective we bring to the Bible. And more re so I think, yeah, that that's an important point that he's making right there. And I might just uh, I might just go ahead and pause on that from there. But um, good stuff. Right. So, 
you know, he made the biblical argument for circumspection or ambivalence, and they were based on how, you know, Jesus taught them, you know, be about the Father's business. That, that stuff isn't your concern. Then the sociological reason is, you know, it is very interesting down throughout church history, uh, the, the dominant eschatologies tended to map on roughly to these um, sociological factors that were, that were in place. And he's saying that should cause us to be like, you know, a little bit skeptical of our own confidence because we, we tend to be drawn into one or the other of those based on what's going on around us rather than just pure, you know, biblical exegesis. Um, interestingly enough, though, one one maybe counterpoint to that right now is, you know, there, there seems to be this real, real growth in post-millennial eschatology in the past uh, several years as things have really, really declined in, in the U.S. And so this might be one of those unique situations where you're seeing a social decline, but an uptick in the optimistic eschatology, which would, which would run against that, uh, that sort of way that things have tended to go. Um, but there may be other reasons for that uh, outside of pure exegesis as well. But just just wanted to make that side note is that that, that is a curiosity of the time we're in right now. As I think part of it, I was, I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, man, what is what is contributing to this rise in, in preterism, partial preterism in particular, and then in post-mill eschatology? And I think there are a lot of factors to it. One, I think there um, – one of the what a, uh, exporters of post mill thought is uh, you know Douglas Wilson and the guys over in uh, Moscow, Idaho, and I think you know with everything that's happened in the, in the past several years in the big evil world, which is the the waters in that world tends to be dispensational premillennialism. Um, and, you know, so many of those leaders just, I mean, when it came, like if we, you know, if you think of it, like we were in a battle and the enemy approached us, I mean, many of them just folded like, you know, cheap lawn chairs. And in fact, many of them like sold us just out. Like there, there was just no, there was no like laying their life down, no protection, like, nope, they folded. And then even in some cases started carrying water for the other side. And I think, um, you know, if you think about that movie Inside Out, like where the islands are falling, I think for many of us, the, the islands, the people, you know, we, we buy their books from Lifeway or, uh, you know, listening to their, you know, their YouTube teaching series and all that kind of stuff. It's, it was like, oh, man, we were really let down. And there weren't too many generals standing on the field, to be honest, like when it came to the woke stuff or it came to the political stuff. It's like, man, you looked around. In many cases, you felt like, man, where did all of our generals go? And there, you know, there were still quite a few left. They just weren't the ones in many cases we thought would be there. Um, but one group of people that were was there was, you know, this this group from Moscow, Idaho. And then the more you got to know about them, you're like, oh, man, they, they really were, in many ways, they were prepared for this long beforehand. So they've been doing this. They've been standing up and fighting in these battles. And in fact, not only them, all the, a lot of these people connected to this larger kind of I don't know if you call it archaic, but just maybe marginalized 
movement called the Christian Reconstruction Movement that we'd never even heard of. A lot of them did a way better job when it came to responding and and standing in in all the craziness that went up, you know, that happened during that time. And so um, we started, I think, saying, okay, why is that? Like, what is it about them? Are they are they just special people? Did the people we follow just lack courage or what is it? And then as you dug into it, you realize like some of it actually might have had to do with the theological frameworks. And, and you know, there, I mean, there's other stuff involved too. There, there can be lack of courage. There can be lack of strength or lack of character. But I think if nothing else, at the very least, um, the dispensational premillennialist viewpoint gave an alibi for many of our leaders to not fight back when they should have um, they should have engaged in that fight. And that doesn't make it false necessarily, but what it did was it just it caused us to to take a, a fresh look at it and say, man, is this true? Like, is this theology true? Um, and I think some people, to even to even ask that question, felt like it betrayed the Christian faith. I think I think for many of us, we thought you know, Trinity, two natures of Christ, rapture. You know, th- those are part and parcel of uh, of Christian theology one hundred and one, and and it it is now and it always has been kind of thing. Like these are the historic creeds of the church. And that's the way it felt, I think, because uh, and there's a whole history to this. If you if you wanted to look back in the controversy in the early 1900s of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, they call it. So um, you had people that were you know being faithful, like the early fundamentalists, like J. Gresham Machen, and some people would maybe put B.B. Warfield in that place. The Princeton greats. They wanted to hold to things we would all call basic biblical doctrine, you know, the supernatural, the virgin birth, um, the atonement of Christ, the fundamentals, quote unquote. Um, and so the, the modernists were wanting to reinterpret the Bible in terms of German historic criticism, evolution. Um, they were willing to deny inerrancy of the Bible and say, you know, well, it teaches moral truths, but it doesn't necessarily teach historical and scientific truths. Uh, so they were they were willing to let go of some of those things that had characterized Christianity throughout the ages. And there was this major battle. And what happened was shortly after that battle sort of kicked off the the dispensationalism that had rooted back the, the kind of pre-trib rapture idea that that really came out of mostly out of Darby in the in the 1800s had made its way over to America and had gotten combined with the fundamentalists probably not well definitely not B.B. Warfield and Hodge those guys were post mill um, Jay Gretchen Machen I can't remember where he fell on that on that whole framework but I don't think he was a dispensationalist but shortly after that when the when the fundamentalist movement began to spread and Moody Bible Institute Biola um, all these different aspects, these Bible institutes that withdrew from the other universities and, and wanted to start these Bible colleges, they got wedded with dispensational theology. Then you had the Schofield Reference Bible, and then Dallas Theological Seminary kind of gave it more uh, scholarly um, weight behind it. So when when you realize that that late development of dispensationalism doesn't make it false, um, but it, but it is the kind of thing you say, okay, well, if this was a 
or a non-existent or maybe super, super rare point of view throughout Christian history all the way till the 1800s, that means all these Christians reading their Bible, serious Christians, 1800 years or, you know, ish before that missed it. Now, is that possible? Yeah. Is it likely? Probably not likely. So I would want to say like, man, what is there? Is there strong biblical evidence for that? And I'd be open to that and say, yeah, there's, there's you know, they just missed it. People can miss it. You can miss it for long periods of time. I mean, the, the Jews missed Jesus and they had, you know, so anyways. That being said, I think at the very least, we could recognize from the late development that this is not part of Christian orthodoxy like the Trinity is or like the the dual nature of Christ or, you know, inspiration of Scripture. It should be held to a lower level, um, and we should be able to come to it and question it without having your orthodoxy question. But the reason that they got wrapped together because the, where previous the post-mill, A-mill had been the dominant framework, it, it began to live more and then got secularized on the modernist side. The fundamentalists adopted almost to a number later on, the 19, as the 1900s went on, the dispensational view. And so that became the Bible-believing view. So to question that was to question the Scripture itself. So that's, that's sort of how that happened sociologically. Um, and now what I would say to that is, um, in fact, the guy, I, I, I didn't play this part, but he even says, you know, that it shouldn't be something that we put to people as a test of orthodoxy. Now, there's one aspect of eschatology that was put in the creeds pretty early on, and it's the idea that Christ will return physically and that he will judge the living and the dead. So there will be a wrap-up to to this earth. There will be a new heavens, new earth, that kind of thing. Um, so that bare-bones eschatology is there. Um, all four of these positions, though, pre-mill dispensationalism, historic dis, uh, historic pre-mill, post-mill, A-mill, they all in their in their kind of textbook versions fall into within orthodoxy. Uh, the only one that wouldn't really is what's called full preterism, and I'll you know touch on that later. But but that should give you kind of like a, a scale, like it's it's within the realm of orthodoxy to explore these different areas and and, and try to come down on the biblically. You're not you know um, you're not upending. Christian history. In fact, if if you were to land outside of the dispensational camp, that would be the 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 most kind of unique version of a Christian history in, in the latest version. Again, not doesn't mean it's false, but does mean it should it should really be tested, and you should really take a good hard look at the different positions and do the best you can to say, man, which one lines up best with the Bible. And so, just real quickly here, I want to pull up this chart. One thing to think about, too, as we go into this is that, you know, some people have, have commented that really to to frame all these eschatologies around the millennium is probably not the best idea because the only passage this really comes from is in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And, you know, with Revelation being one of the most, you know, difficult books to interpret, if not the most difficult, and one of the most symbolic books in, in all of Scripture— you know, to base major systems around one passage within that book is probably just not exegetically wise. Um, so I, th- that's why partially you can hold the the millennium viewpoint, I think, with a little bit of 
looseness. Um, what's what's more important, I think, in in discovery and something I'm trying to get. Like if you think about you know the rush do anything versus the other guy, I think with the, what the other guy points out that's that's helpful is like yeah be circumspect no matter what view but on the rush do any side it's like but yeah pursue it pursue really understanding this as good as as much as you possibly can because it really it really does and can matter um, in a day to day way and so. You know, pursue it like you want to get certainty, but just understand you probably won't have certainty, especially the more detailed it gets. If that, you know, if you can put it together like that. Um, And in that, they basically could funnel down to two categories of optimistic or pessimistic in their viewpoint of like which way is are things going is is. The knowledge being filled with the glory of God, is that something that's going to happen progressively like it looks like from the Matthew 13 parables where the kingdom starts like a small seed and grows and grows and grows throughout the world? Or is it like wheat and tares where both grow equally, the evil gets greater, the good gets greater? Or is it more like the cataclysmic thing of like, man, it gets worse and worse and worse, but Christ comes and rescues us, then all that stuff happens. That's that's sort of more important than, than exactly how you cash out this the thousand years. But I think that the millennium framework still helps you have these different viewpoints. And then from there, you could say, well, if I'm, I'm I land, let's say, for instance, you land on historic pre-mill, but you say, I'm, I'm going to approach it like it's a more optimistic version than a pessimistic version. There's a way to craft that. Same thing with A-mill. A-mill, you do, though you tend to get more pessimism in that, you do have some, what they would call optimistic A-mill advocates. And then you have somebody like Vody Bakken that says he holds to A-mill, but he lives like he's post-mill kind of deal. So, uh, here's the chart here. Let's see if I can even zoom in a little bit more. Um, so this is historic premillennialism. You'll see there the cross. You got the church age, and it says society grows increasingly evil uh, toward the great. You get the great tribulation, and then you get the second coming of Christ. Okay, that second coming. Some people will picture First Thessalonians four as the saints being gathered to Christ to receive him as he descends to the earth and you come with him. And then you rule and reign with Christ for that thousand years. Um, and then at the end of that thousand years is the final judgment. So see if I can read this real quick. Historical Historic premillennialism is the belief that the second coming will precede the millennium and that the church has replaced the nation of Israel as God's covenant people. Now that, that actually a lot of historic pre-mill people would say they don't agree with God uh, replacing Israel with the church, that they would disagree with that, but neither here nor there for that. All right, let me just read a, a little bit of this. I won't read the whole thing, but it says, Most historic premillennialists believe that Christians will remain on the earth during the Great Tribulation. The Tribulation will purify the church by rooting out false believers. Um and you see, you know, there's a few scriptures here supporting it. The revealing of the Antichrist precedes Christ's return, Second Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Tribulation will root out false believers, Revelation 2, 22. The saints are on earth during the tribulation, Revelation 13, 7. Anyways, you can go through those and compare and contrast. Um, talks about when historic pre-mill was popular. Uh, and, and a lot of people do say this was, this was kind of the earliest view post-apostolic period. Uh, rooting back to people like uh, Lactantius, 
Irenaeus, just a martyr, and possibly, uh, it says probably Papias, um, who, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. Now, I'm, I'm going to check into that as I'm studying, because that would be that would be probably to me a stronger piece of evidence if the person that was a disciple of John held that view because they were, would have been able to, I would think, to ask him, you know, hey, what did you mean by this? <laughs> what did what do you guys actually believe with this stuff? So uh, representatives of this viewpoint would be John Warwick Montgomery, uh, George Beasley Murray, David Dockery, Robert Gundry, and George Eldon Ladd. So that's historic pre-mill. Uh, dispensational pre-mill is... Um, if you're looking on the chart here, you see God's work with Israel, uh, the cross, after the cross, God's work with the church. That's the parentheses of the church age. Then the next thing on the calendar is the rapture, and then you get the great tribulation for seven years. Second coming to Christ is after that when he comes back with the with the saints and the angels to rule on the earth for a thousand years. Then you get the final judgment in eternity. Um yeah, I think we've gone over enough of of that viewpoint. That's probably the one we, we mostly know. That's the one that most of us are have been, you know, kind of kind of just the waters we've swam in. So, uh, let me go on real quick to a millennialism. You can see there from the cross, the millennium starts then, uh, really after uh, after the ascension, um, the millennium begins, or some people root it back at Pentecost. Um, but they, they kind of draw it up in the upper story. So you have the church age, the whole church age is the millennium, um, and tribulation is the entire time. So there's, there's periods of great tribulation. There's periods where it's less tribulation, but it's, it's kind of like a, this picture that the church goes through tribulation. Sometimes you might think of that as the, um, the idealist view of revelation where it's more, it's not really given the future so much as it's given like what Christians will experience throughout time. Uh, different viewpoints on that, but you'll see the a mill is kind of the, the simplest version. So in the sense that there's one coming of Jesus, the second coming of Christ, and it ends everything and that we don't know when it'll be. Um, but the whole church age is the millennium. So it says a millennium is the belief that the millennium symbolizes Christ's reign in the lives of his people from the beginning of the church until his second coming. Revelation nineteen eleven through 21 portrays Christ's triumph over Satan through his death and resurrection. This triumph restrained the power of Satan on earth. Uh, Revelation 21 through 3, the first resurrection, Revelation 24 through 6, symbolizes either the eternal life experienced by persons who die in Christ or the spiritual resurrection experienced by persons when they become Christians. When Christ returns, he will immediately defeat the powers of evil resurrect the saved and unsaved, judge them and deliver them to their eternal destinies. Um, according to A. Mill thought, the Great Tribulation represents calamities and persecutions that have occurred throughout church history. Most references to Israel and Revelation are symbolic references to the people of God. In apocalyptic re- uh, literature, numbers represent concepts, not literal statistics. For example, as s- symbolizes incompleteness, seven represents completeness, ten indicates something that is extreme but limited. Twelve represents the perfection of God's people, so on and so forth. Uh, let's see. It says amillennialism became popular in the, the fifth century. 
uh, has remained widespread throughout church history. Prominent amillennialists include the Protestant reformers Martin Luther and John Calvin. Although, like you said, some people say Calvin is probably more in line with with post-mill thought, uh, so there's debate there. Uh, As well as evangelical theologians such as E. Y. Mullins, Abraham Kuyper, uh, Burkauer, Hobbes, uh, Herschel Hobbes, that is, Stanley Grintz, and J.I. Packer. Many students of church history believe the church father, Augustine of Hippo, was the first amillennialist. And again, there's debate on that, whether he was amill or postmill, or maybe some combination. And then last here is the postmill viewpoint. Uh, has the church age, then tribulation. Uh, and over the church age, society gradually improves toward what some call a golden age of the millennium where the, the nations will become Christianized by and large. And then you get the second coming of Christ. Although I would say that most current post-mill is actually more like a mill uh, in the sense that they don't have like a golden age in mind. They would see the whole thing as just progressive. And, and where they would differ with most A-mills a would be uh, in, in the aspect that the gospel will have ultimate triumph over the nation. So it would be a slow, progressive thing. The whole church age would be seen as the millennium um, that would end in some situation where now the, the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of our God and, and then say, uh, Satan is loose one final time. Uh, and then Jesus comes back and he basically at that point defeats the final enemy, which is death. So, uh, yeah, you get the idea there. Let's see the earliest post mill writer they have said is from 1135 Fior, although, like I said, some people root it back in Augustine, uh, became popular in the 19th century, partly because of the era's optimism about the future prominent post mills include church leaders such as Eusebius and Athanasius. And those that's where they put those because those are way before uh, the other the other dates. Um, preachers such as Jonathan Edwards and Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I don't think Spurgeon is a post-mill guy, but he was an optimistic pre-mill, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong about that. Uh, and theologians such as Bieber Warfield, uh, Augustus Strong, Charles Harge, R.L. Dabney, and R.C. Sproul. So, yeah, hopefully those charts, if you get the, get a chance to look at them, I, you know, some of the details in there, I think, where they're summarizing, you could... I don't know if all those were, were quite accurate or not, but the, I think the charts are pretty good um, sketches of, of each of those views, just so you can begin to say, okay, what, first of all, what are these views? And then looking at the scriptures to say which, which positions are better supported um, by good biblical interpretation based on good exegetical principles. And so I think just for time's sake, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now, and we'll hop into some more next time. So thank you so much for joining me for this episode, and uh, hopefully this stuff's helping. If you, if you wouldn't mind, let me know if, if you're helped by this material, if you're like, you know what, I'm not really interested, let's move on to something else. I'd like to hear from you either way, so let us know. We'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>